The sermon is drawn from the psalm we sang, Psalm 21. In the book of Acts, in chapter 2, you have the great day of Pentecost, and Peter is giving that remarkable sermon that brings the chapter to a close. And along the way in that sermon, he quotes a number of biblical passages, one of which is Psalm 16. In verse uh, 24 through 31, we read these words. Speaking of Christ, David says, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. For David says concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope, for you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, for you will make me full of joy in your presence. <laughs> Men and brethren, Peter goes on, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne, he, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. In quoting the psalm, he's quoting a passage that had been for the church of God, just something a little bit of an enigma. In Psalm 16, when it says, you will not leave my soul in hate, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption, it's a parallelism. It could be interpreted in a number of ways. It could be interpreted as the same idea restated. So the psalmist would be saying, speaking of myself, being David, uh, you won't leave my soul in hate, nor will you allow me to see corruption. The only problem with that interpretation is it's clearly not true. And Peter points that out. He points over there and goes, see, see the grave? There's David. David's in there. He's in the sepulcher. And everybody knew that. Yeah, David's dead. So it could not be that. It could also be parallel in that the prophet David was saying, you will not leave me in Hades because there is one particular holy one that you will not allow to see corruption. And uh, Peter says that has to be what he's talking about because David is corrupting in the tomb, but there has been one who has been raised from the dead who did not see corruption. Uh, that is what the prophet was talking about, and that's the Christ we've been preaching. Jesus never saw corruption. David was talking about him. That is particularly significant for the psalm that we just sang. Psalm 21 is about a king. And who is this king? Well, in the subscription to the psalm, we're told this is a Davidic psalm. And David is a king. And if you read the Amplified Bible, 
the Amplified Translation will tell you right in verse 1 that uh, the king, bracket, David, will rejoice in the strength of God. If you read in the Amplified, you need to know that anything that is in a bracket is commentary. And I'm not, I'm not casting shade. If you look in the, the front of the Amplified Bible, it will tell you that. Uh, anything in brackets is commentary added to give clarity. The only problem with that is when we come to Psalm 21, if David is the king being talked about, there's a lot of things in the psalm that can't be David. Uh, Listen to verse 3 through 6. Speaking of the king, For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked life from you, and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. For you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad in your presence. Could that be David? Well, no, not by a long shot. When we begin with what's said about the king, um, the New King James says, you will meet him with the blessings of goodness. The King James translates it, you will prevent him with the blessings of goodness. And that old English use of the word prevent is actually uh, right dead on to the Hebrew. In old English, when you prevent something, you cut a channel for something ahead of time. Now, the way we use it, it's if God prevents us, then he's blocking us from something. But if you go back to 1611, when people said I had been prevented, it means somebody has gone ahead of me and prepared the way, cut a channel, so that what is going to happen, I'm allowed to do. So it's literally the opposite meaning. And that is what the Hebrew says this king will find. God himself will have cut a channel ahead of his coming so that he will have all the blessings of goodness. And then David says these blessings of goodness come from the fact that uh, you place a golden crown upon his head. David was not born into nobility. He was born into being a shepherd. David would be given the kingdom many years later, but it cannot be said that God met him at his birth with the blessings of kingship. In fact, that's we've been reading First and Second Samuel, and that's what that's all about. But this king, God has cut a channel. He is given a crown from the very moment of his birth. Um, This king asks life from God, and God answers him and gives him life. Now, we in the Psalms see David cry out to God many times, preserve my life, O Lord, from the enemy, deliver me from the hand of man. But this king asks life from God, And God gives it to him. He gives him eternal life, length of days forever and ever. 
uh, if you go throughout all the, the English translations, you'll find they all translate it that way because there's no other way to translate it. The Hebrew is very clear. This king cries out to God and says, Lord, give me life. And God says, I will give you life so that you will live forever and ever and ever. World without end, eternally. Again, you can picture Peter going, can the Holy One be David who will not see corruption? Look, there is the tomb, and he's in there corrupting. But this king asks of God for eternal life, and he gets it. He will live forever and ever and ever. He will be given glory and majesty beyond measure, and uh, he will be, in the New King James, most blessed. (laughs) If you read the English Standard Version, it says in the footnote to verse 6, he will be the source of eternal blessing forever and ever. He will be the place where God gives his blessings to people. So can that be David, son of Jesse? Can that be said to be him? Well, the answer seems to be absolutely not. It can't be David, son of Jesse. David is writing about another king, and the king he is writing about has to be the greater David. It has to be the one who will live and never see death, who will be the source of God's blessings. From the moment go, David is writing about our Lord Christ very directly. Just like he wrote about Christ in Psalm 16, so he is writing about Christ here in Psalm 21. Um, This is fully and strictly Jesus of Nazareth. It can be no one else. We open the psalm with our Lord Christ crying out to his Father for the desires of his heart. His heart is aching with certain desires he possesses. And the first two verses emphasize that God grants him the desires of his heart. They read, the king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation, how greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the requests of his lips. And then in the English, you have the word salo, which means stop and consider that, meditate upon it before you move on. Uh, The psalmist wants you to really think about the import of those first two verses. Christ is pouring out to his father, this is what I desire. Christ is going to receive it all. Everything that is on Christ's heart is going to be given to him, and it's going to come from the hand of the father, It's going to come through two very specific things that are parallel. It's going to come through the Father's strength and his, quote, salvation. The imagery is that Christ is crying out to his Father, and the Father is going to act for him in strength in the form of salvation. The... Biblical word salvation, whether you're talking about the Old or the New Testament, is a dynamic word. We use it in a very passive way. We talk about, I've been saved, and what we mean by that is we're going to go to heaven when we die, and we ain't wrong. 
That is very much a part of salvation, but the concept of salvation all the way through Scripture is a dynamic action. It is a act of the Father's strength. It's actually a war metaphor. Uh, the New English Bible actually translates this as the king will rejoice in your victory, paired with the image of strength. And the New English Bible ain't wrong when it does that. The father is going to act as a man of war for the king. What the king desires, the father is going to give him, but there's going to be great hostility to it. And Christ calls out to the father and says, Father, grant me my desire. And the father girds on his armor. The father takes up his bow, which we read about later on in the psalm. The father sets about to war and says, I will give you, king, all your heart's desire, but I will fight for you. I will go to war for you. And the king is watching this, and at the very beginning of the psalm, he is rejoicing in the strength of God, which is going to be launched upon his enemies because God the Father delights to give to God the Son the desires of his heart. It will be a struggle, though. It will not be something that the king will go through passively. He is going to see dark moments. He is going to be assailed. He is going to be abused. He is going to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And as he does so, the king, which we have already established is our Lord Jesus Christ, is going to have to walk by faith. <laughs> Verse 7 says, For the king, that is our Lord Christ, for the king trusts in the Lord. And through the mercy of the Most High, that is, his covenantal faithfulness, his promises, through the mercy of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Christ will walk by faith. God has called you to walk by faith, to trust in him in the darkness, to lay hold on him as your only hope. To walk by faith can be a very scary thing. And in Bible study this morning, that was actually kind of put forward. Uh, you don't know what's going to happen. You are trusting in someone else. You are laying hold of another and saying, if you do not support me, I will not be supported. If you do not help me, I will not be helped. That is what Christ calls us to. In fact, going through John, we're in chapter 6, over and over Christ tells us faith is the work of God. Have faith in me, lay hold on me. Don't trust in anything else. Don't trust in your works. Don't trust in sacraments. Don't trust in priests. Don't trust in anything else, but trust me. Walk by faith. That is what God wants of you. Has Christ laid upon us something that he has not experienced? The answer is no. When our Lord Christ goes through this world and takes hold of his crown and begins to build his kingdom, 
We see him fully human as well as fully human. And we see him in his humanity absolutely having to walk by faith. It is the Father our Lord Christ totally trusts in. It is the Father into whose hands he gives his spirit. It is the Father whom he is praying to in Gethsemane. Uh, Father, I'd prefer not to go through this, but not my will but thine be done. All the way through the life of our Lord, we see our Lord walking by faith. Yet he has come to live out the first covenant, right? He has come to fulfill all the holy works of God so that he can trade his works for ours, right? We talk about being saved by works because we are saved by the works of Christ. His works are substituted for ours. In talking about that, we might think our Lord didn't need faith. He was perfect. He was morally perfect, and he is. We could not be more wrong. When God created man and woman, and he commanded them to be his under-shepherds and to obey him in all things, even in perfection, would there be any way of doing that without faith in God? I think the answer can be seen in chapter 3 of Genesis. What is happening when Satan begins to tempt Eve, he begins to say things like, God told you that, but it wasn't real. Or has God really said? Right? What is that but an attack upon Eve's faith? Faith is trusting God believing God, laying hold of God, being sure the promises of God, right? So Satan comes to bring the first sin. He attacks her faith. He attacks their faith. And in fact, they fail in faith. And that is why they commit the first sin, is because the devil attacked their faith. The ironic thing is to be pleasing to God has never been about mere works. It has been about relating to God in faith. Uh, Christ relates to his father in faith. Christ goes to the cross in faith. Christ goes to death in faith. Christ looks ahead to the open tomb in faith. And here in Psalm 21, we are told the Father gives him all his desire and fights for him for, the word means because, for the king has faith in God. He trusts in God's covenant mercies. So you find yourself in the darkness. You find yourself in a hospital waiting room with terrible news hanging over your head. You find yourself betrayed and heartbroken. You find yourself uh, wrestling with things far larger than you, and you wonder how you're going to get through. And you remember Christ has commanded, have faith in me. That is what you must do. 
You must lay hold of me and trust in me. He has commanded you nothing but what he experienced as a man. He walked in complete faith of his father. He depended upon God, his father's power. He has gone before us. There is nothing that he calls us to that he has not gone before us in. Because Christ has walked by faith, he shall not be, quote, moved. Verse 7 ends with that. Through the mercy of those tie, he shall not be moved. What does the term moved mean here? Well, if you look for it elsewhere in Scripture, it comes up. It's actually fairly common in the Old Testament. Uh, a good place to look at is Psalm 125.1. There we read, those who trust in the Lord, and there's faith again, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, same word, but abides forever. In fact, the next verse goes on to talk about how Jerusalem is surrounded by mountains, keeping it in place, it's not going to be moved. In the book of Amos, the book begins like this. The words of Amos, who was among the sheep breeders of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion. So there's a reference to the earthquake. God is roaring, roaring from Zion. So that's ground zero. The Lord roars from Zion and he utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So there has been an earthquake. It has caused huge disaster. Uh, the ground has quaked all over the place. Ground zero was Jerusalem. <coughs> How can Psalm 125 tell us it was not moved? Well, again, if you go back to the Hebrew, the word moved literally means shaken to destruction. It is not that an earthquake won't happen. It's that things will be standing after the earthquake. It will not be shaken till it falls apart. When my daughter was young, we used to like to take her to the Science Museum in Louisville and one of the activities they had for kids was this table that would shake. You took blocks and you built a tower, and then you hit the button and you saw how long it took for the earthquake to knock the tower down. The Lathia thought that was great. Well, when we are promised that Jerusalem won't be moved, we are promised it will never fall down. But actually, in the original Hebrew, there is the assumption there will be an earthquake. It just it won't shake it to pieces. It is the exact same word here. The king trusts in the Lord. Therefore, by the power of God, even though the earthquake happens, even though the kingdom is assailed, even though there are enemies who rise up against the king, he will not see his kingdom shaken to destruction. It will stand in every earthquake. It will stand in every assault after the dust clears and maybe everything around it has been leveled. That 
kingdom will remain eternally secure. It is an assured kingdom. Last Lord's Day, looking at John chapter 6, we were looking at God's promises to the one who has faith in him. And Christ again and again assured his listeners, of all whom the Lord gives me, uh, I will take hold of them, I will hold them, and I will lose none of them, and I will raise them up in the last day. In fact, he says it three times. And so there is a major uh, theme there that if you are given by the Father to the Son, it is an assurity you will be saved, you will be delivered, your salvation is secure, you're not going to lose it because the Father gave you to Christ. Here in Psalm 21, you have the same kind of promise, but it's a promise about the kingdom of Christ. The king will come into the world, already the king, the crown will be waiting for him at God's hand, the king will go through a sailing, the kingdom will be attacked, the kingdom will be shaken. There will be enemies of the king without end. The king will watch the Lord's strength as the Lord battles. But the kingdom is absolutely assured. Will the forces of darkness destroy this kingdom? Will they bring it to annihilation and extinction? Will there be a day when the French philosophers can wave their flags and shout, we told you that Christianity will come to an end. We assured you that within a hundred years of the French Revolution, there would not be a church or a Bible anywhere to be found in Europe. Will that happen? The answer is no. It cannot, for the Father has promised the king, your kingdom will be eternal. The father is in covenant with the son. Your kingdom will always remain. Let the powers that be assail the kingdom. Let there be setbacks as there have been. But never will the kingdom of Christ ever, ever, ever be extinguished. The king will be king. The kingdom will be there because the king trusts in the Lord and the Lord has a said for the king and he will maintain that kingdom. Why can we trust in that? Well, uh, it has to do with what the father is going to do in eternity and in time. Uh, he begins with eternity. In verse 8 through 10, we read, Your hand will find all your enemies, speaking to God at this point. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. And in fact, there's kind of an emphasis here in the original on there is a coming time. It it is not something that is going to instantaneously take place. Um, some translations emphasize when you come, and they're not wrong. 
you shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. What, what does that sound like? There will come a time when the Father <clears throat> will be fully revealed in his wrath, and when he does, he will find every one of his enemies. He will lay hold of everyone who hates him, because really that's the issue. They're attacking the kingdom of the king. They're trying to shake it to pieces. But why do they hate that kingdom? They hate God. They hate everything that God is and everything he stands for. These are the enemies of the king. These are whom the Lord is contending with. And in his timing, he will make them like a fiery oven. He will consume them in fire. It will be perpetual and forever. Uh, God has reserved a day of judgment. And all of his enemies will be found by his hand in that day. It's a done deal. The kingdom will never perish, but the enemies who fight against it will absolutely perish. And while that's waiting for them, temporally, God makes a couple promises about what will happen in time. The first one is, their offspring you shall destroy from the earth and their descendants from among the sons of men. That sounds mean, doesn't it? <coughs> if you're a God-hater, you hate these kind of verses, or love them, depending on how you look at things. Uh, God is mean. He, he will destroy their children, pluck them off the earth. Uh, what do we make of that? In Psalm 14, we have a reference to all the sons of men. <coughs> Beginning in verse 1, we read, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good, no, not one. Children of men is children of Adam in the original. And the Apostle Paul uses this passage in Romans to say that every son of Adam is under the wrath of God. It's in chapter 3. But then as this Psalm 14 goes on, we read, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? And then it goes on, but the psalmist says, now every son of Adam uh, is not good, they're corrupt, they're fools. And then he says, there is my people as opposed to the sons of Adam, and they devour my people. So if we're talking about all the sons of Adam, who are my people that are not the sons of Adam? Because there has to be a distinction. Well, the psalmist is talking about legal standing. If you are in the kingdom of the king, are you a son of Adam religiously? Are you covenantally before God a son of Adam? Is that how he sees you? Well, the answer is no. If you, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, if you are converted, you are a son of Abraham. You are a son of the seed. You are in the covenant of promise. You are no longer legally the sons of Adam, though you descend from him physically. 
you stand before God in Christ. There is a distinction. Uh, congratulations, you're not a human being. Human beings are condemned, but in Jesus Christ, you are something else. You are the son of Christ. You are in Christ. You are covenantally different. <clears throat> Bring that back to Psalm 21. He will consume their offspring off, off the earth. He will destroy their children. These are people who are still covenantly in them, who say of the wicked, this is my father, who say of those who hate God, I am proud to be their son. They stand before God in the line of God's enemies. If God should be gracious to them and convert them, they are no longer the children of those people. They are something different. They are covenantally different. But God in time will fight for the king and those who covenantally are in those who are wicked and hate the king and fight against him, God will in time bring their line to an end. He will consume it from the earth. And even as they strike at the kingdom in time, um, will they be able to succeed? Well, the answer is no in verse 11 and 12. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. The psalm pictures uh, the powers that be in the world and even the common man wanting to bring an end to the kingdom of the king, wanting to bring it to ruin. They're plotting it, but they will not be able to perform it. Why? Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows upon your string towards their faces. So even as there is a coming judgment for them, even in this world, Though the enemies of the king may have resources and power and human wisdom and all the machinations that evil produces, they will fail, for the father will draw his bow, will put an arrow in the bow, and will aim at their face. That is fighting language. That is warfare. That is what happens when things shake, but the kingdom doesn't shake to pieces. That is what happens when God has to act in salvation. God will preserve the kingdom and will thwart every satanic attack against it. Why is the kingdom assured? It is not because of its citizens. It is not because of you and me. It is not because of our wisdom. It is not because of the strength of either our arm or our mind. It is because the Lord with bow in hand is watching out for every plot. And he will bring those plots to an end. This strength at God's hand that the king begins reveling in in the first couple of verses, uh, we end the psalm with it as well. We hear, be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. Many of you knew John, John Pierce, who was one of the founding people helping us put this church together. John was, I think, 96 when I first met him. And when we talked, John assured me that he had spoken with the Lord and he'd asked the Lord just to have another 10 years. If he could just have 10 years, that'd be fine. 
which would make him 106. Uh, John didn't get there. He only got another two years. But uh, the very first thing that John ever said to me when I met him was, literally the first thing, not hi, my name's John, anything. Uh, John walked up to me at the founding Bible study of this church and said, hi, my name is John Pierce. I had a brother who died. He didn't know the Lord. Uh, I will see him on the day of judgment, go into hell, but I will rejoice in that because God is good. And I remember thinking, you are one of the strangest men I've ever met in my life. But John was right. He was saying God will be glorified in his grace. He will be glorified in his salvation for the kingdom. He will be glorified in his wrath on sinners. Uh, John's not wrong. Those who belong to the king will see his father fight for him. And converted people who are in the kingdom will rejoice when God brings forth his arm and brings his salvation. It is a fighting word. It is conflict. It is the father standing for his son and saying, I will take all comers and bring them down, bring them down in time, bring them down in eternity. There is nothing here of the milksop Christian who says, oh, I must be nice. Niceness is next to godliness. Niceness is God's greatest virtue. The psalm ends with, we will see God war with those who war with Christ. There is a reference to hell and damnation. There is a reference to shooting them in the face with arrows. And we will rejoice because God is good. And so it is. We will rejoice in the Father. We will rejoice in the kingdom whose king is, as the ESV note puts it, the source of eternal blessing forever. I teach world religions, as you know, at EKU. I'm struck with how religious the world really is. Uh, There's no kingdom on earth, no people group that lacks a sense of divine, that lacks a sense of religion. A case can be made that mankind is incredibly curious about God, though they don't actually want the God that is. There is something in them that they're still longing for. Uh, Our psalm tells us there will be a kingdom, and the king of that kingdom will be the source of all blessing. If you're looking for God you'll find it with that king. And to find the king, you'll need to be in the kingdom. And why does that blessing come? Well, it's because, as verse 6 says, uh, for you have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. Want to find God? He will be with Christ. You will not find God without Christ. The Father will be next to him. The Son has cried out to the Father, give me my heart's desire. And God has said to him, yep, go do that. He is the delight of the Father. He is what God is doing. Christ and his kingdom is what the Father is about. If you would find God, you will find this king. And he is in his kingdom. That is where blessing is. We have the source of eternal blessing. Because if we have been given by the Father to Christ, we are in this kingdom that is utterly assured. 
and the fount of blessing is in him. Thanks be to God.